0: Church family, would you take God's Word this morning and join me again in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 7, the last two verses of chapter 7, and then making our way through the first four verses of chapter 8. Matthew 7, verses 28 through chapter 8, and verse 4. The Sermon on the Mount has come to its conclusion, and as we'll see, even in the text before us today, the response... Uh, to the Sermon on the Mount seems to be largely positive from the crowd. In fact, in just a moment we'll see how the crowds were absolutely amazed. They are astonished at this teaching of Jesus. They've never heard anything like this before in their lives and so they're drawn to him. They will continue to follow him. What began back in chapter 4 before the Sermon on the Mount, what began there in chapter 4 with these Great multitudes following Jesus everywhere He went that will now continue as you move into chapters 8 and beyond. The crowds and the excitement in those crowds, that's going to continue to build as they grow more and more amazed by the teaching and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. As you move into chapter 8 of Matthew, really chapters 8 and 9, uh, what you come to here is a bit of a, a transition point in Matthew's Gospel. It is often that uh, Matthew, Luke often follows this same pattern, really to some degree all of the Gospel writers do, that there's a pattern of we look at a section of the teaching of Jesus and then we move out of that section of teaching into a a section of kind of narrative of uh, the miracles and kind of the practical ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you move into chapter 8, that's the kind of flow that you ought to be kind of getting into here. We're moving out of a section on teaching now into a section on the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we move into this new section, I think there's One, uh, maybe many, but at least one big question that I think we ought to consider this morning as we move into a section of Scripture where we're going to see many miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Healings and uh, later in Matthew's Gospel, raising from the dead and, and curing of all kinds of diseases. I think the question that we ought to be asking and considering as we move into a section like this is, hey, what's the point of the miracles in the first place? Why is Jesus doing these things? Why feeding so many people out of so very little? Why so many accounts of healing and compassion from the Lord Jesus Christ? When Jesus heals the sick and restores the lame, when He casts out the demons, when He purifies the unclean, what are those miracles really about? Is it just merely that we would be amazed that his followers of that day, that they would be wowed and that he would have a large crowd following him everywhere he went? Or are these miracles serving a bit of a greater purpose? The miracles of Christ are not there to entertain. Jesus has no interest in entertaining the crowd. He has a lot of interest in their souls. He has a lot of interest in their life. But Jesus is no magician. He's no showman concerned with being the the latest and greatest cause of entertainment in Israel. The miracles of Christ are not there to entertain us, but they are there to declare an unmistakable reality of who Jesus is. Every miracle that Jesus performs is declaring a particular truth. And that particular truth is this. I am the Son of God. I am the long-awaited Messiah. And all authority has been given to me under heaven and on the earth. Every miracle that you read of in the Gospel accounts is directing your mind, it is directing your gaze, it is directing your heart into this reality that King Jesus has all authority over all of His creation. And that King Jesus has right and rule and reign over all of our lives. As Jesus has made His way through the Sermon on the Mount, what has He done? He has told us how to live. He's told us what the kingdom is like, and if we're really disciples in that kingdom, here's what our lives are going to look like on a practical basis. There might be some in his day, maybe even still in ours, who would say, now Jesus, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to kind of get into my life and tell me, how to live Jesus do you not know that we're living in a day when you can live however you want to live and nobody gets the right to tell anybody else how to live or that the way that they're living is wrong Jesus who do you think you are and it is as though Jesus says I'm I'm glad you asked for here is who I am the one true and living God incarnate the long-awaited Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and all authority is Mine. The miracles of Christ are not there to merely amaze us, but they are there to move us to worship. As we read these familiar stories of Christ's compassion to the least of these, we should not merely just be, wow, what a what a miracle worker but we should declare wow what a savior what a god what a christ there were many in jesus day and i believe still many in our day they're okay with jesus just so long as he's doing miraculous acts of kindness for others But as soon as he sovereignly demands that they live their lives in accordance with their word, they walk away unto eternal destruction. Church, I want us to exercise great care in our study of God's word this morning, and in particular over these next two chapters in Matthew's gospel, that we would exercise a great care in our hearts, that we would not read these miracles and just simply be amazed at Jesus' power. Even as we see His compassion on display, that we would not be merely amazed at oh, what a kind man Jesus is. But that we would do what I believe Jesus is calling us to do in this, these passages. Which is to bow our knee, to bow our lives, to bow our wills, to bow our church before His glorious Lordship majesty and authority look at the text with me matthew chapter 7 pick up in verse 28 all the way down through chapter 8 and verse 4 when jesus had finished these words the crowds were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one having authority not one and not as their scribes when jesus came down from the mountain large crowds followed him And a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go, show yourself to the priest, And present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. The passage today before us, it serves to show us the authority of the King, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it serves to give us five particular evidences that Jesus has all authority and right over His creation in our very lives. So we want to look at these five evidences together. Number one, the first evidence that Jesus is fully authoritative is that Jesus' authority is evidenced in His teaching. How do we know that Jesus has all rule and rights and authority? Well, we see it evidenced, verses 28 and 29, in His teaching. So the sermon is over. it's Come to its conclusion. And kind of a, a segue couple of verses here that give us some really important insight into who Jesus is. So in verse 28, Jesus finished these words and the crowds were amazed at His teaching. So myriads and myriads of people are there upon the hillside with Jesus. And when He gets done, I wonder if there was some kind of hush that had fallen over that people on that hillside. Verse 28 tells us that they are they're amazed. They are astonished. They are stunned at what they have just heard in this sermon. For some people in the crowd, you got to think there were maybe just older people there in the crowd that they've lived almost their entire life and have never, not even once, been amazed by such teaching. They're gripped. There's a wonder about this man and everything that he has said. They've never heard teaching like this. Why? Well, verse 29. Verse 29 says, the reason for their amazement, for he was teaching them as one, notice it, having authority, and not as their scribes. So why are they amazed? What's the source of their amazement? What has them in such a holy hush in that moment? Because as they're listening to Jesus teach, as they hear His proclamation there is something stirring in their souls that is saying to them, that man is not like everybody else. There's something different. And you have to wonder if as the sermon begins, may, maybe they're uh, you know, kind of settling in, maybe kind of sitting down, getting a little comfortable But as those first few words begin to come out of Jesus' mouth, everybody gets settled really quickly. Because as he begins to speak, there's just something very different here. We've we've not, we've not heard this kind of preaching before. We've not been stirred in our souls like this with such teaching. There's a clear and noticeable, obvious difference between Jesus' teaching and what they hear from their scribes in the synagogues or in the temple every Sabbath day. The biggest and the most noticeable difference is that in verse 29, Jesus is preaching with what? He's preaching with authority. There is power. There is right in His teaching. Why is this novel to them? Why, when Jesus proclaims these things with all power, and when it comes out of His mouth, the people are like, yeah, He's right. And and why is it that in their souls, they feel this sense of, uh, yeah, He's right to say these things to us, to demand these things of us, They understand that there's a difference between what they hear kind of week in and week out and what Jesus is now saying. Why do their scribes not have this kind of authority? Why has that been lacking in their gatherings on the Sabbath day? Why has it become so very humdrum, if you will? Why does it feel so legalistic why is the teaching always burdensome and never encouraging why does it always feel weak even coming from the mouth of our scribes of our teachers why are the scribes lacking the authority which is so clearly evident in jesus teaching let me just mention a couple of reasons i think number one The reason that the scribes are lacking this authority is because they are not God incarnate from whom all authority derives. There is only so much power that the teacher of God's Word has, but God and in His Son Jesus Christ, there is no limit to the power and authority that is His. Part of what it means to be sovereign God over all creation, part of what it means when you speak the world into existence out of nothing, part of what that then means for you is that you are in complete authority over all things. Listen, if in the beginning there's nothing but God, and God creates everything that is, ex nihilio, out of nothing, then guess what? You get to call the shots. You get to say, this is how creation is ordered, and this is how my people are going to live in the midst of this ordered creation. It is intrinsic to God's very nature that He has all right and rule and authority. And God's authority is not given to Him. It is simply His by right. It is His based on the nature of who He is. That He is the pre-existent. That He is the self-sufficient. That He is the sovereign, eternal Creator God. That's why authority is His. These scribes Well, they don't have that kind of authority because they are not God. And now, here's Jesus Christ, God incarnate before them. Jesus Christ, who existed before time began, who created all things by the word of His mouth, there is in Him power and authority that no one else is going to have. He is so powerful. The right of all authority is His to such a degree that you remember back in verse 24 last week, He says about the sermon, these words of mine. I don't get the right to say that about the Bible this morning. These aren't my words. It is only Christ, the Word made flesh, who gets to say, these are my words. They are from Me. I have authority over all things and in all that I say. Secondly, the scribes are going to lack authority in their teaching. It's going to come off weak. There's not going to be any power in it because they are not teaching in accordance with the Scriptures. No wonder it be as weak as pond water. No wonder that it doesn't move its hearer to know God, to love Him, to follow Him, to repent of sin and submit themselves to the Lordship of God Almighty. They have twisted and they have perverted God's Word. They have taken Scripture out of context to fulfill their own selfish desires. They have misinterpreted and they have misapplied the Scriptures, thereby heaping heavy burdens upon their hearers and making their hearers, as Jesus will later say, twice the sons of hell. Scribes have wrongly believed that they are the ones with an inherent authority. But what they forget is that any authority they could hope to have is not intrinsic to them, but it is given to them inasmuch as they stay faithful to the Word of God. You cannot expect to play fast and loose with God's holy, inerrant, infallible, and inspired Word. The Word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. You can't expect that you're going to walk in power, that your church is going to walk in power, that your family, that your marriage is going to walk in power apart from the Word of God. It is worth reminding me, my heart, every pastor that stands in any pulpit, It is worth reminding every church that no matter how learned, no matter how wise, no matter how experienced, no matter how big the platform or how wide the ministry influence, no pastor has an inherent authority of his own. None. I have zero authority that is mine. Intrinsic to my nature and who I am. His authority is derived from one place and one place only. And that is the Word of God. The pastor doesn't have authority because senior pastor is on his office door. The pastor has a borrowed authority that is directly proportional to how faithful he is in the pulpit to the Word of God. I am always so stunned when I hear pastors churches everywhere wanting authority and wanting the power of God in their churches, yet they don't even dare to open their Bibles. Do we think that God is going to be honored? Do we think that God is going to move among us? If we keep our Bibles closed or maybe even worse, we twist and pervert to meet our own selfish ends. Do we think that there will then be power among us? Do we then think that there will be salvation and conviction and sanctification among us? Apart from the Word of God, church, there will not be. There cannot be. And I'm always so stunned when churches want God's power but they put the Bible on a shelf and replace God's holy, powerful Word with every pragmatic, seeker-sensitive method that they can get their hands on. Beloved, may it be said of faith family that as long as the Lord tarries, we stand on the power and the authority of the Word of God. And you have a sacred responsibility to make sure that what comes out of my mouth is nothing but thus saith the Lord. And you have all right and responsibility that in the moment where that ceases, to start asking some questions. Because if we want the power and the authority of God among us, we must preach the Word. Secondly, The second evidence of Jesus' authority, and I'll confess that I lingered a little long on that first point, so bear with me. The second evidence of Jesus' authority is this. It's it's evidenced by how He's approached by a leprous man, a, a man with the disease of leprosy. Look in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8. When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed Him. And a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The sermon's over. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus leaves the mountain and a large crowd is going to follow him. This is the large crowd that was gathered at the end of chapter 4. Maybe a few others have come along. We don't know. And now Jesus is going to come down from the mountain. It's time to go out. It's time to do ministry. They are drawn to him. Never heard anything like this before. There were miracles and signs and wonders before the sermon, and now they hear this authoritative word from His mouth, and they are now even more attracted, more drawn. And so people from all walks of life are now following Jesus, including those who have leprosy. This leprous man comes up to Jesus and begins an interaction with him. There's a couple things I think we ought to know about leprosy if this text is going to make any sense to us. Uh, Leprosy, today it's called Hansen's disease. It's pretty well defined in our day and and it can be cured in our day. It takes a a while but there are medicines that will cure Hansen's disease. In Jesus' day, leprosy was really kind of a a large term for everything from like a skin rash all the way to a a full-on case of leprosy. And and there were some things about uh, having this disease of of leprosy that we need to understand here. Uh, What what you've got with this man, by the way, this leper that's come to him, Luke is going to record in Luke chapter 5 and verse 12 that this man is full of leprosy. So, so this guy has a full, it's not just a little skin rash that we, we don't quite know what to do with. It's a full-on case, an evident, clear case of leprosy. Leprosy is, in its most complete form, is a devastating, uh, consuming, destructive, and debilitating disease that, that gets into the skin and begins to, uh, just begins to eat away And if it goes on and and it's not cured, it will eat away at appendages and facial features, and it it is just a a completely awful and disfiguring type of disease. Maybe sores and uh, just open wounds. It, It is grotesque. It is hard. Leprosy is a destructive physical disease. But but maybe even harder for the one who has leprosy is that it's a disease of isolation. Lepers were forbidden from living within the city walls, and so they were cast out of town, outside uh, the gate, if you will. They were cast into these maybe little leper colonies, uh, little small gatherings of leprous people. It was believed that leprosy was contagious and that it was transmitted by touching and so then, you, you have, if you had leprosy, you got to get out. You can't be around other people. And so that means there's never going to be a lot of human interaction. You're never going to feel a human touch again. It's completely isolating. But, but being even worse than that, even worse than this physical isolation, is that leprosy is a sentence of spiritual isolation. It was believed that to be a leper means that you were cursed by God. So in Numbers chapter 12, you might recall the story where Moses' sister Miriam, she's kind of had enough of her big brother, and so she begins to grumble and complain. To murmur against him. She speaks ill of Moses in front of the people of God. The Spirit of the Lord comes down upon Miriam in the form of that pillar of cloud and it covers her. The Lord speaks judgment against Miriam. And when the cloud lifts, Miriam is left a leper. As a result of this, it was believed then that anyone with leprosy was cursed by God. And if you're cursed by God, you are then therefore spiritually, ceremonially, in every way, unclean. So here's what this means for the leper. You have no access to the things of God. You have no access to the temple. You have no contact with the priest. No right to any of the Jewish feasts or celebrations. Lastly, because a leper was cursed by God and therefore unclean, if you were to touch a leper yourself, then guess what? you're also unclean. You also now have no access to the things of God. And so to add insult to injury, if you're a leper, everywhere you go, you have to call out, unclean, unclean, so that the people get away from you so they don't contract your impurity. And in verse 2, that's exactly the kind of person that comes to Jesus. Full on leprosy. Maybe even disfigured face. Fingers that maybe are worn down to nubs. Maybe trouble even walking because this disease has affected his toes and feet. This leper comes to Jesus and I want you to notice how he comes in verse 2. Notice some of the aspects of this interaction. He comes and he bows down before Him. He falls prostrate. Before him is what that means. And so often that language throughout the rest of the New Testament is used as a posture of worship. He comes humbly. Life's been hard. People have shunned him. Maybe his family had nothing to do with him. But notice that he's not jaded, he's not bitter, he's not cynical. How does he come? He comes humbly and bows before Christ. He calls him Lord secondly. As we'll see in just a second, I think there's something in this leper's heart and in his mind where he is recognizing some things about Jesus that are true. It certainly can be used as a term or a title of respect. But I think the leper understands some other things about Jesus. And that there's a recognition here, a humble recognition of Jesus' sovereignty and authority. Thirdly, what does he say to Jesus? If you are willing. Notice what He doesn't say. He doesn't ask if you're able. There's not a question here of Jesus' ability, just His willingness. So Jesus, if you're willing, then fourthly notice what He says, you can make me clean. Notice that He doesn't say you can heal me. All other diseases can be healed, but leprosy because of its Uh, Because of its impure effect, it must be cleansed. He recognizes his uncleanness. He doesn't want to merely be healed of the disease, but cleansed from all of its defiling nature. And Jesus is the only one who can do that. And so he comes humbly before them. Jesus' authority is evidenced in how this leprous man approaches him. And humble recognition of who Jesus is and what Jesus is able to do. Thirdly, third evidence of Jesus' authority is that Jesus' authority is evidenced in His touching of what is unclean. Verse 3, the beginning of verse 3, Jesus stretched out His hand and touched Him. Who touches a leprous person? You're not supposed to do that, Jesus. In case you don't know the rules, you don't touch a person with leprosy. Who does that? Nobody touches a leprous man. It's been rightly observed here that Jesus' compassion, I think this is right, that Jesus' compassion compels him to reach out and to touch a man that nobody else has dared to even get close to. The compassion of Jesus enables him to tenderly touch this man who likely has not felt a human touch in years. Church, I would just call you here. Just make note of this. File this away. You have been touched by God's grace and mercy and compassion. Therefore, church, we should be the most compassionate to the most isolated and hurting. Jesus spoke the world into existence and could have healed this man with a word, but he chooses to do what? He stretches out his hand, moving toward him, getting close, and touches him. It's an expression of his grace and goodness. But even still, Jesus, you just touched a man with leprosy. And now Jesus, in case you didn't know the rules, that now means that you are unclean. Except here's the problem. Jesus is no mere man. Because Jesus is so holy and pure. Because Jesus holds absolute authority over all uncleanness when holiness touches uncleanness Holiness doesn't become unclean. Unclean becomes holy. That's the power and the authority of Christ. Jesus can reach out and touch what the law and all society says is unclean. And Jesus is in no way affected by that. He is not tainted in any way by reaching out and touching what is unclean. When Jesus, by His grace, decides to stretch out His pure and holy hand, as we'll see, uncleanness must flee. Fourthly, how do we know that Jesus has all authority? It's evidenced in His immediate cleansing Look at the second half of verse 3. Jesus said, I am willing. I am willing. Here we see His heart. His compassion. I am willing. Be cleansed. And immediately, His leprosy was cleansed. Can you imagine the leper? Jesus, if you're willing, you, you can cleanse me. Maybe there's a moment, I don't know, but maybe there's a moment. What's Jesus going to say? How's He going to respond? Is He going to recoil? Jesus, if you're willing, and then He hears, I am willing. I, I'm, I'm a God of grace and mercy. of Compassion. I, I, don't, I don't recoil from the broken. I, I, I move toward the broken. Reaches out his hand and touches. And immediately, immediately, he's cleansed. Leprosy is not cleansed immediately. In our day, it can take up to two years to be healed of leprosy. And that's with antibiotics and drugs and all those kinds of things. In Jesus' day, they didn't even believe it could be healed. And if it was somehow cured, it would take months and months, if not years. However, when Jesus, the One who is authoritative over all creation, over all people, and over all disease, when that One touches uncleanness, it must immediately flee. Everything in all creation. Is under the sovereign control of the one who makes the earth his footstool. Jesus is not just a good teacher. He's not just a miracle worker. He's not just a social justice warrior. He's the king. And everything, even disease, bows the knee and obeys his every command. And then lastly, in verse. How do we know that Jesus has all authority? Because it's evidenced in His command to this healed man. It's Evidenced in His command to this healed man. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go, show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Multiple times throughout Jesus' ministry, He's going to heal people. He's going to give them this same command. Why? Don't go tell anybody. Go to the priest. Don't let anybody else know. Why would Jesus give that command? A couple of reasons. Number one, Jesus doesn't want to be known as the celebrity who comes along to amaze the crowds and wow them with His miracle working. Jesus came to save His people from their sins, not just their physical infirmities there may be aspects of jesus command to tell no one because he doesn't want people getting the wrong idea about who he is or what he came to do but secondly and i think more importantly why does jesus say don't go tell anyone go straight to the priest jesus gives this command in order to fulfill the law of god as the authoritative word of of God Jesus wants this man to go to the priest to not violate or abolish God's law in any way and so he tells him to go to the priest what's involved in that process of going to the priest uh, this afternoon while you're uh, getting ready to take a nap open up to Leviticus 13 Leviticus 13 and 14 all right, and right you're going to find there the laws about leprosy and uh, kind of the whole cleansing process, all right? Uh, I will uh, briefly uh, summarize it for you. If you believe that you have been cleansed of your leprosy, you go to the priest and you let the priest inspect. You also take an offering with you. This offering is going to be two live birds, a piece of cedar wood, a scarlet string, and some hyssop, a hyssop branch. Uh, When you get there, if everything checks out, one of the birds is going to be sacrificed. And its blood is going to be spilled out. And the live bird, the cedar wood, the scarlet thread, and the hyssop are all going to be dipped in that blood. The cleansed leper himself is also going to be sprinkled by the blood seven times. And then that live bird is going to be released, signifying the removal of this disease away from this person that cleansed leper is then going to shave off all his hair the priest would sacrifice then a, a, a lamb for him and the blood of that lamb would be used to anoint various parts of that now cleansed body jesus tells this leper go through that process go to the priest and do everything that the law demands obey god's law And when this healed man at the end of verse 4, when he goes to the priest, it's going to serve as what? It's going to serve as a testimony to them. His cleansing, his healing of leprosy is going to be a testimony, a glorious declaration that the King has come and healing is in His hands. What, What does this story of this interaction between Jesus and the leper What might that have to do with our lives? When you head off into your work week this coming week and all the stuff that you've got going on school-wise and everything else, what does this have to do with us and our lives? Let me make a couple of final points of application here for us. Number one, as we're seeing the authority of Jesus, evidence in His teaching, evidence in these various ways in this interaction between Him and this leprous man, I think a a final point of application or a question that we could be asking ourselves this morning is this. If Jesus is the sovereign, authoritative Lord of all creation, and He is, then are you living before King Jesus as though He is the supreme authority in your life? if he still be alive, seated at the right hand of God, if he still holds all rule and rights, all power and authority, are you living your life in complete submission to Him? If Jesus can immediately cleanse of leprosy, then what that tells us is that all things are under His sovereign control. He's not just a magic miracle worker. He's not just a good example. He's not just being kind or nice in the Gospels. He's evidencing His sovereign lordship. And we've got to ask ourselves, is my life in conformity and submission to this sovereign Lord and rightful King? Christian, Remember, remember this, that at one time you were this man. Maybe physically you were fine, but at some point before Christ, you also had a disease that left you outside the gates, away from the presence of God. Not a home, no place, no compassion, no grace upon your life, and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy One of God, came to earth, lived a sinless life for you, went to the cross and died for you, shed His blood for your cleansing, rose from the dead for your eternal life, He came to you when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He breathed life into your spiritual nostrils, made you alive, adopted you into His family. Does He not now deserve all allegiance? Does He not deserve our lives? Remember who you were. Remember what Jesus saved you from. And if you are not in Christ this morning, if you do not yet know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you still, even now, remain in your impure state. Physically, you might be fine. You might have gone this last week and gotten a clean bill of health from your doctor. But if you're not in Christ You are sin-sick. You have a disease, and it is destroying you. And left alone, left alone, it will absolutely consume you. And there is only one way to be cleansed from this disease of sin, and that is through the purifying blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe by faith that Jesus is not just your mom and dad's Savior, not just your granddaddy's Savior, not just the pastor's Savior, but that He's yours. That you are a sinner, that you are impure, in desperate need of cleansing, and that the blood of Jesus Christ is for you. Do you believe that? Have you come humbly? as the leper did. Bowing low. Not, not, not swaggering in with all of your pride and Jesus. I'm really okay. I don't really need Your help. But have you come humbly and in faith? Friend, if you're not in Christ this morning, can I just remind you that if you will come to Christ in faith responding to God's call Uh, of faith and grace upon your life. That when you do that, His holiness and His purity will touch your uncleanness and immediately you will be cleansed. Immediately. Today. You call out in faith, today you will be saved. Because God is authoritative over salvation. And when God saves, sin must flee. Jesus is the authoritative King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Are you responding to Him as such? Let's pray together. Father, that Jesus is the King, the authoritative King, what that means. It is a response from our lives. God, we we can't ignore this. God, we can't stand before Your Word that shows so clearly the authority of Jesus over all things and then shrug our shoulders and walk away. We're going to do something with it or we're going to reject it. But it will not be ignored. God, my my prayer, my hope, my aim is that every person in this room would bow the knee, bow their hearts, their lives, their wills before this King. Eternal King. Soon coming King. God, that for us as Your people, those who make up faith family fellowship, God, that we would not hold on to any authority that we think we have. That we would not hold tightly to the reins of our lives. God, that we would yield. Father, that we would yield that issue in our hearts. God, that we would yield that habit God, that we would yield our marriages and our families, our children, our church. God, that we would yield to the King of all the ages. God, that You would have Your way in us. God, we confess that when we we try to do it our way, it, it, it leads to brokenness. And in purity, God, have Your way. Father, in the heart of anyone in this room that doesn't know Christ, that their response would be this. to Call out upon the name of the Lord in faith, in full trust, and that they would be saved. God, thank You for the promise of an immediate salvation for all who turn by faith to King Jesus. God, now by your Spirit, help us to respond as we should. God, be pleased in us as you continue to work your word into us. And we ask and pray it in Christ's name.